Let's open God's Word together. Acts 26. Acts 26, starting in verse 12. We're picking up in the middle of Paul's last defense before Agrippa as we see the hope of the resurrection again. So let's look at Acts 26, verse 12, all the way to the end of the chapter. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen, all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as He was saying these things in His defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows that these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these, none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing deserving of death and imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we gather around your word. May your spirit work within us to give us minds that can comprehend what your word says, to give us hearts and affections that align with your desires, what you love and what you hate. Give us broken hearts to grieve over our own sin and the many lost around us and throughout the nations. And Father, give us great hope in the resurrection in Christ, the first fruits of our own resurrection, and in the hope we have in the final resurrection to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start this morning by talking about a man named Dr. Erwin Lutzer. I'm not sure if any of you recognize him. He's written a lot of books, but he was a pastor uh, at Moody Bible Church in Chicago for 36 years. He's, he's actually still alive. He just recently retired and runs a, a radio program in Chicago now. Well, Lutzer, um, Lutzer was not just a pastor. He was also a teacher at the Moody Bible Institute. And he's kind of known for teaching one class in particular. He taught lots of classes, but there's one class in particular that stands out to almost all of his students. And it's the class he teaches on preaching. It's his homiletics course. And the reason why it stands out to the students is because of the way it starts. Dr. Lutzer brings all the students into class. He checks them all in. And just about when class is supposed to start, he says, all right, everybody get up. Let's go out and load up on the bus. He loads the whole class on the bus. They drive for a few minutes to a graveyard. And when they get to the graveyard, he he calls everybody out of the bus. He gathers the class right in the middle of the graves, brings them together, gets their attention, says, all right, would anybody like to preach a sermon to these dead bodies? He said, usually somebody snickers and laughs. Most people just try not to make eye contact, right? If you're a teacher, you know what that's like. He said, but he never gets volunteers. He did this for years, and nobody ever volunteers to preach to these dead bodies, to these graves. So Dr. Lutzer would actually give a sermon to these dead bodies, preach his heart out to these dead bodies, to these graves. And he said, after a while, it would be a long sermon at times, the kids would get restless, and they would, they would get frustrated, and, and they didn't really get it. And then when he was done with the sermon, he prayed his prayer, he would get their attention again, and he said, this is preaching. This is the task of preaching. This is what you're signing up for if you enter this class. This is not just the task of a a preacher. This is the task of every single Christian. Because we are men and women raised from the dead, commanding the dead to come to life. I wonder if you believe that. I wonder if you really believe that it takes a resurrection for somebody to be saved. Did it really take a supernatural act in your dead heart to raise you from the dead, to to give you grace, to give you salvation? Do you see your kids, your family members, as dead, lost souls apart from the work of God in their own hearts and their lives? Your friends and coworkers, do you see that it takes a miracle of resurrection to save them? And do you believe that because God resurrects the dead, he can save anybody? There's nobody off limits. There's nobody who said, well, that guy's way less likely to be saved. Do you believe it takes a resurrection to be saved? Those are the questions I want you to think about as we finish this last defense 
um, of Paul before Agrippa. If you remember last week, Paul appears before this King Agrippa to give his final defense, to give his final hope. Because for chapters now, he's been on trial. He's been on trial for blasphemy, for profaning the temple, because they thought he brought a Gentile into the temple. And trial after trial, he goes before the Jewish council. He goes before the Roman governor, Felix. Then two years later, he's passed off to Festus. And now he's on trial again. Paul gets tired of this back and forth. He says, you know what? I need a fair trial. I'm I'm going to appeal to Caesar. And so Festus kind of likes this idea because then he can wipe his hands of Paul. But now Festus has a problem. He's brand new in office. He can't just release Paul. Jews would be angry. They want him dead. But he can't just send him to Rome with no charges. So he's stuck. So providentially, beautifully, Agrippa comes to town. King Agrippa comes and decides to hear Paul's case, which makes Festus excited because he can pass him off, share in the responsibility, but it also makes Paul excited as well. If you remember last week, look at the very beginning of chapter 26. Listen to how Paul begins his defense. Listen to what he says about Agrippa. Verse 2, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So this is Paul's chance for a a fair trial. Agrippa is the expert, the Roman expert in all things Jewish. This, This might be his chance to get a fair trial, to actually have his case heard and to be released. And so Paul says, Agrippa, listen carefully. I'm going to go into details that I would not go into with Festus and Felix because it would just fly right over their head because they're Jewish details. And we need to remember that as we read the rest of this passage, that this defense has the flavor of the Old Testament, the language of the Old Testament, and that's what I hope to draw out to you this morning. Well, if you remember that Paul has been about one thing and one thing only his entire ministry, and in his defense against Agrippa, he was still about that one thing, that one hope, that one truth. If you remember what that is, that is the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's foundational for Paul, it's foundational for all of us. The hope of the resurrection. And last week we heard that that Paul said, look Agrippa, you can't understand these controversies. You can't understand why I'm in prison apart from the resurrection. You can't understand my conversion. You can't explain what happened to me apart from a supernatural resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then also God resurrecting me. And then I have one more C for you this week, keeping the alliteration going, all right? So controversies and conversion, and this week we'll talk about Paul's calling in light of the resurrection. Paul's calling in light of the resurrection. Now we have a lot of scripture to tackle today, so I broke this down into kind of three phases. So we're going to talk about Paul's prophetic calling, then his impossible calling, and then his fulfilled calling before we see how Agrippa and Festus respond. So let's get into that in verse 12. This is Paul's calling in light of the resurrection. Oh, but there's one more thing I need to tell you before we get into that. You might have noticed when we read this that you've heard this before. I know we read it last week. That's not what I mean, okay? We heard this before because this conversion story appears in Acts. Paul has already talked about it. Luke has talked about it. It was in Acts 9 and Acts 22. So it kind of begs the question, why would Luke put this conversion story in here again. 
He could have easily summarized it. We've heard the story before. And Luke skips two years of Paul's life while he's in prison. But he brings it back and talks about this trial where Paul shares the same story again. What's he thinking? Obviously, it was important in Paul's life. It changed him dramatically. It's important to show his authority that was given from God. But I think there's one reason and one main reason why Luke shares the story again. Because Paul tells his conversion story a little differently this time. He doesn't add details. It's not like a fishing story, right? It was this big. and It's, it's not like that. But he changes the language. There's a different emphasis because his audience. He tailors it to Agrippa. And Paul tells his conversion story that mirrors the calling of the prophets in the Old Testament. It's just like the way they were called to show Agrippa, look, Agrippa, I'm just like the prophets. I have the same message, the same hope. Listen to me like you listen to them. And that's why Paul talks about his prophetic calling. Verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. So this is while Paul is persecuting the church, while he's, he's trying to take out God's people. And then everything changes. Verse 13. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, which is the the Hebrew dialect, probably Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, this is the first example we have of this Old Testament language. How did Jesus address Saul? He called him by name twice. Now, we don't want to make a massive deal about this, but if Agrippa was familiar with his Bible, he's heard this many times before. This address where God calls out to somebody by their name twice happens so many times in the Old Testament at very important or very intimate moments. Usually the moments when God's calling somebody out to minister for him, calling a prophet out to speak God's word. And so Paul is called out by Saul, Saul, just like Abraham in Genesis 22. Do you remember the the story where he's going to sacrifice his son? Mount Moriah, he's been given this test by God, and he's just about ready to kill his son. And what does God say? Abraham, Abraham, don't lay a finger on the boy. Now I know you trust me. In Genesis 46, when Jacob receives this vision, when Joseph essentially saves Israel from famine, Jacob receives this vision from God that says, it's okay to go to to Egypt. I'm going to keep my word there. I'm going to keep my promises there just like I did here. So he says, Jacob, Jacob, trust Joseph. Go with him to Egypt. I will be faithful to you there. In Exodus 3, when Moses is called out of the burning bush, what does God say? Moses, Moses, I have a job for you. Elijah, the same way with the chariots of fire. Samuel, remember that story in the temple when when he goes to Eli and says, hey, did you call me? And he says, no, go to sleep. And and then he comes back and says, oh, did you call me again? And he says, no. Next time somebody calls you, answer, who are you, Lord? And God calls out, Samuel, Samuel, I have a job for you. Sprinkled throughout the entire New Old Testament is this personal address that Agrippa should recognize. Calling men to be this mouthpiece of God, to speak God's word to his people. And then when Paul, 
is persecuting the church, when he's fighting against the ways of God, Jesus stops him in his tracks and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Agrippa would get that. And then Paul also adds this in verse 14, the second part. He says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. You might read that and go, what in the world? The goads? What in the world is a goad? Right? But this is actually a saying in Paul's day that, that he, his people would get really clearly. And it had to do with this idea that on an ox cart, there was this, this plank fixed with these spikes on it. And then when they were training an ox to, uh, to pull the cart, sometimes the ox would be stubborn and they would whip the ox to go and the ox would fight back by trying to kick the cart off. And so when the ox would kick, they would kick right against these spikes and hurt themselves. Hopefully learn not to kick again. But some oxen were so dumb and so stubborn that they would just kick and kick until their feet were bloody. And it became the saying, this kicking against the goads. And so what Jesus is telling Paul is, Saul, you're just like that dumb ox. Why are you fighting me? You're just hurting yourself. You're fighting the sovereign Lord of the universe. You're fighting the one who's been given all authority in heaven and earth. And you can't win. I'm sure at this point, Festus and Agrippa might already be squirming in their seats. Because they now, putting Paul on trial, hearing Paul's case, they now, if this is all true, might be the ones kicking against the goats. They might be seen as the ones opposing God. They might be seen as the one opposing God's church. And so now they are put in Paul's place. And Paul's call, Paul's challenge, is now extended to them. And look at verse 16 as Jesus continues Paul's calling. But arise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now can we just pause for a moment to celebrate God's grace towards Paul? You think of this moment. Paul's knocked off his horse. He's killed Christians, persecuted God's church. Wouldn't you expect that this would be the moment when God would just unleash his wrath? Look, Paul, you've killed my people. You've tormented my church. You've obstructed my work. You're twisting my scriptures. Prepare to die. Not sure why Nigo Montoya came to my head there, but um, <laughs> apparently it does work, though. <laughs> this, is, this is what should have happened. Jesus should have appeared to him to condemn him, but instead he commissions Paul. He calls Paul to his service. And that's what we see God's grace giving to resurrect this this man who opposed the church to give him life and forgiveness and to make him a servant and a witness, as it says in verse 16. Our God is incredibly gracious. He doesn't treat us according as our sins deserve or according to our iniquities. We praise him for that. But then Jesus also tells Paul in verse 16, rise to your feet. You're my servant, you're my witness now. In verse 17, he says, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to deliver you. And I'm going to send you to those Gentiles, those godless, rebellious people that all the Jews hate. Now, if the whole name thing didn't catch 
Agrippa's ear, this absolutely would have. Because this is almost an exact quote from the Old Testament. Jeremiah, when he was called to be a prophet, God says, I'm going to send you to a nation, a stubborn nation that won't listen. Now, Paul's sent to the Gentiles, and, and Jeremiah was sent to Israel, but they're just as stubborn. And then God also promises Jeremiah that I will be with you, and I will protect you as you go. Does sound familiar? When Ezekiel gets called, the passage that Mikey read earlier today is from Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 2, God tells Ezekiel, Son of man, stand on your feet. The exact same words given to Paul. Stand upon your feet and I will speak to you. And he said, Son of man, I am going to send you to the people of Israel, to a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. It's almost the exact same words as Jesus told Paul. And what Paul is doing here is he's trying to say, look, Agrippa, I'm just like the Old Testament prophets. I have the same mission as theirs, the same calling as theirs, the same commission as theirs. My work is just as important as theirs. In fact, my work is a fulfillment of theirs. I'm the the fulfillment. I'm preaching about the fulfillment of their hope. The Messiah has come. Listen to me, Agrippa. Listen to me like you listen to those prophets. And so he tells him about his prophetic calling. And then Jesus continues and steps it up a whole notch, maybe even a lot of notches, and says, you're also going to have an impossible calling. An impossible calling. Look at verse 18. Paul, you're going to be my servant, my witness. What are you going to do? Verse 18. To open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What a beautiful description of the gospel, isn't it? And that last word, sanctified, there, it's, it's an important word. It's actually used in a way that we're not used to. That word is actually covenantal and corporate. It's talking about a group of people. And in, in a way, it's actually more of an objective sanctification, not a subjective one. It's not the kind of sanctification where we grow in daily holiness. It's more of the end of that process. Paul is trying to say, look, these are going to be people that are brought into the people of God, and they will be holy in the end. That God's going to get us home safe and sound, looking just like Jesus. That's the kind of sanctification that Paul is trying to proclaim here. It's a lot like what he says in Corinth. Do you remember the Corinth church? I mean, to even use the name church is pretty loose naming of that church. It was the church from hell. And Paul tells them, you have been sanctified, past tense, sanctified in Jesus Christ. You are made holy. Jesus bought that holiness for you, and one day you will be perfect. That's part of Paul's job description, but that's not it. Look at what else Jesus calls him to do. Open blind eyes to call those out of darkness into light, to free people from the power of Satan, to, receive, to have people receive forgiveness, be brought into the people of God? How in the world is Paul supposed to do that? I thought God's the one that opened people's eyes. I thought God is the one that, that pulls people out of darkness, that gives forgiveness. After all, our sins are against him. Wouldn't that make more sense? And Paul even said later on in 1 Corinthians that so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So how can Paul act 
like this impossible calling is his job. Well, because, believe it or not, it is. This is Paul's job in light of the resurrection. Because you see, Paul has been resurrected spiritually. He's had his eyes open. He's been brought from darkness into life. He's been forgiven of his sins. He's been freed from the power of Satan. He's been given a place among God's people. And he will one day be holy. All that's happened to Paul. And now Paul is going to be the means by which God does that to other people. It's as if Paul is saying, God has given me the ministry of resurrection. God has given me the privilege of doing exactly what happened in me to other people. Not because I was holy, not because I deserved it, not because I'm just more impressive than other people, but because God has chosen to work through me. I'm a means by which God does it. He does the whole thing. It's an impossible calling if it's all in Paul's strength. Isn't this also so much like the prophets? I mean, think about their calling. Moses, go to Pharaoh. And he'll listen to every word you say. No. Go to Pharaoh and I'm going to harden his heart so he won't listen to you. And the only time he'll change is when I soften his heart. Isaiah, go and preach to a people that will be ever hearing but never perceiving. They're not going to listen unless I change them. Ezekiel. Ezekiel is called to preach to these dry, dead bones. And God gives him this picture that says, look, you can preach to these bones, but the only way they're going to have life is if I give it to them. And prophet after prophet gets this impossible calling. This impossible calling that that Paul is sharing with us. And Paul says it again in 2 Corinthians 4. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 4. You don't have to turn there. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Why would you do that, Paul? Why would you try not to be impressive? Why would you try not to convince people to be winsome? Why do you not care about those things? For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see what Paul says here? We proclaim Christ crucified, resurrected. We proclaim that Jesus came as us, came in the form of man and obeyed in our place, that he went and obeyed the law that we failed to live. He was perfect in our place, and he went to the cross, paid the penalty for our sins, making atonement to get us right with God. And then he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, and ascended to heaven where he rules and reigns. And then he's imparted to us the ministry of resurrection. He's imparted to Paul this ministry of resurrection to open blind eyes to call people out of darkness, to call people away from the dominion of Satan, to offer them forgiveness and grace and to give them a place among God's people. That's Paul's calling. To proclaim these truths and to see God do that in other people. Now to be clear, we're not apostles. hope that wasn't even unclear to you already. But we're not apostles. We haven't had a Damascus Road experience. We don't have this exact same role in the church that Paul has. But isn't our calling similar to Paul's? 
We're called to make disciples of all nations, to teach them the things of God, and we're calling people that are still dead in their sins, just as dead as they were in Paul's day. It's just as impossible now as it was back then. We are called and we are given essentially the same ministry of resurrection. Now, I'm not so sure we believe that. That we believe that we've been given this ministry, this impossible task, but that God is pleased and delighted to raise people from the dead through us. I don't know if we get that. I think if we did, we would pray a lot more and preach a lot more. I think we really anticipated that God could raise anybody from the dead that would raise our friends and family members from this dead hearts that we have, that we would be on our face before God constantly. Our prayer meetings would be packed out because if God truly is the only one that raises the dead, then who better to talk to? Who better to plead with for our friends and our family members? And why would we not speak to people, no matter how long we get or how short we get or any chance we get, why would we not open our mouth expecting that God could raise anybody from the dead? It doesn't just have to be the people that we expect. Oh, they're really close to salvation. Oh, God can raise anybody from the dead. But what do we do? We hesitate to preach. I just, I don't have the right words. It's, it's, the, it's bad timing. You know, if I knew the right verse, or if I had just the right answer, or if I could speak in a winsome and persuasive way, then they'll listen to me. Or we resort to the work of our hands. We think that we might actually be the cause of salvation in other people. You know, if I catechize my kids from the moment they speak, that will almost guarantee their salvation. That's sarcastic, by the way. Maybe if I put them in the right schools, the right education, then that, that keep them from all the distractions, all these bad things out there, then that will almost guarantee that they'll be God's people. You know, if I share the gospel just the right way, then maybe, maybe they'll listen this time. If I knew more scripture, if I had better arguments, if I get them to the right church, if they hear the gospel in just the right way, then that'll be the trick. If you believe these things are the source, the the, the primary way that people become saved, you don't get the hope of the resurrection. Now, I'm not denying that these are good things and that we should seek these things. Please don't hear me say that. But these are only means by which God works. They're not the source of salvation. If you believe that any of these things are the exact thing that God is basically handed off and said, yep, this is the cause of salvation. This is the root cause. If you believe that there's anything that is the root cause besides the sovereign work of God to raise the dead, you don't get the hope of the resurrection. God alone saves. God alone has to work and do this miracle of resurrection in anybody for them to be saved. Paul gets that. He's proclaiming that to Agrippa. This is his calling, his prophetic calling, his impossible calling, and it's actually even his fulfilled calling. Look at verse 19. These astonishing words to Agrippa. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Think about that for a minute. Paul just said, yep, I did it. You, you did that impossible calling. You actually followed through with this. You didn't give up. No, Agrippa, I was obedient. I did it. And maybe even better, as he says in a minute, God did it through me. Look at this, verse 20. But declared first to Damascus. 
Now, isn't that beautiful? We just have to stop there. Where was Paul headed to kill Christians? Damascus. When God raises from the dead, where's the first place he proclaims the gospel? Damascus. That's only explained by a resurrection. First in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. Now that's another summary of the gospel, much like verse 18. Paul's proclaiming, open your eyes, come out of darkness, receive forgiveness, repent, perform deeds in keeping with repentance. That's what Paul's proclaiming in verse 21. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And to this day I have had the help that comes from God. Paul says, I proclaim this truth. I received this impossible calling. I preached God's word and God showed up. God showed up to me, Agrippa, just like he did to the prophets. Just like he worked in impossible places. God is doing this great work through me, Agrippa. He did it through Jesus and that's, that's the one that we proclaim. Trust me, Agrippa. Something profound is happening here. Listen to my testimony. And what does Paul say? And so I stand here testifying to small and great. Oh, that's beautiful, isn't it? I don't care if you're a king or a commoner. I don't care who you are, what your past has been. There's one message, there's one hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said that would come to pass. That Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to raise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And you see, it's Paul saying, look, Agrippa, you don't get any of this apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You don't get these controversies. You don't get my conversion. You don't even understand what I did, my calling, how it was prophetic and impossible, but God showed up. God fulfilled it through me. I was the means by which God brought resurrection. You can't understand any of that apart from the hope and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, sadly, I don't think Paul was done here. I wish we had the end of this sermon because he's rudely interrupted by Festus. He's interrupted in verse 24, and we start to see these responses to the resurrection, and they mirror a lot of the responses that we might have. So as we look through the last part of this chapter, I want you to think about the way these men respond to the hope of the resurrection. See if we see ourselves in them. Verse 24, Festus responds. And as he was saying these things in defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul, you're nuts. You're too smart for your own good. You've been reading too many of your fancy books. Notice he didn't, he didn't say that he thought Paul was dumb. He just thought Paul was crazy. Paul was insane. You actually think that you have truth? You actually think that your way is the only hope? I mean, come on, Paul. Look at the world around you. Look at how many religions there are. Look at how many things you can believe in. You think you're right? You actually think that Jesus rose from the dead? Do you see that anywhere? That sounds insane. Yeah, you're smart, but man, you're nuts. That's what Festus is saying. Look how Paul responds, 25. I love this. 
I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. Keeps his cool. He's even respectful here, isn't he? Most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words. You need faith to be a Christian. It takes faith, but it's not blind faith. It's right out of the Old Testament. It's promises fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's confirmed by hundreds of witnesses, which is essentially what he tells Agrippa. Look at verse 26. For the king knows about all these things. <laughs> I love this. He's like, I wasn't talking to you, Festus. I was talking to Agrippa. Let's get back to him. The king knows all these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. Paul says this isn't private revelation. I didn't have a vision of this. I wasn't in a cave and God spoke to me. It wasn't my personal revelation, my personal truth. No, this was right in the middle of your kingdom, Agrippa. This was right in front of your face. You can still go talk to these people. This was a public ministry, a public execution, a public resurrection. And many of those people will still proclaim that Jesus rose from the dead. But Paul is saying to Festus, look, I'm not crazy. I'm not out of my mind. This is true and rational. Now, it's interesting here that the word Paul uses for crazy is really the same word used in verse 11 when Paul was talking about how he had fury against the church. It's almost as if Paul is saying, no, that's when I was crazy. When I was raging against the church, when I was fighting the sovereign Lord of the universe, that's when I was nuts. No, you don't understand, Festus. I'm in my mind now. I'm speaking true and rational words. These are reasonable, rational things, but Festus won't hear it. He scoffs at it. He mocks Paul. But what does Agrippa do? Verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Oh, this is great. This is, if this was a courtroom drama, this would be when the audience just gasps. Because Paul, like he's done so many times in these courtroom scenes, he flips the script. He turns it around. He's the one that's on trial, but he flips it and puts the king on trial. He puts the judge on trial, and he says, Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I mean, Festus already broke protocol. He just you know, yelled at Paul in the middle of this, so Paul says, all right, let me do it too. And he asks such a perfect question. And it's the perfect question you should ask any of your Jewish friends if you ever get the chance. Do you believe the prophets? Because if Agrippa says yes, then he has to deal with all that Paul is saying and, and that all the prophets pointed to this Messiah. And how is this Messiah not Jesus? Who would this Messiah be if it's not Jesus who fulfilled all these things? But if he says no, he's going to offend the Jews. He's going to abandon his beliefs. And everybody in this room will mock him. So he's stuck. And I love that Paul doesn't even give him a chance to answer. Look what he does. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Isn't that great? I know it. I know that you believe. And what does Agrippa do? Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? It was this interesting uh, formulation in Greek, and I don't know Greek that well, but in the commentators I read, it's, it's almost like a saying in that day. It's almost as if Agrippa is saying, you think you can get me to play the part of a Christian? It's like, get a load of this guy. Paul thinks he can convince me to be a Christian. You think you got me backed into a corner, Paul? Nice try. Nice try, Paul. You thought you had me. And what does Paul say? 
No, I wasn't trying to convince you. I was just trying to tell my story. No. What does Paul say? 29. Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Wasn't that a beautiful response? Festus mocks and scoffs the resurrection. Agrippa just kind of dodges it, just dismisses it, ignores it. Paul says, I've bet everything on this. I'm in these chains today because of this. But you know what? These aren't the chains that really matter. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, Jesus knocked me off of that horse. He came to me when I was kicking against the goads. He came to me when I was insane. Opened my eyes. Brought me out of darkness. Gave me forgiveness. He freed me from Satan. And he even called me to his service. As he resurrected me, he's resurrecting people through me. And even if I'm in chains, I'm going to proclaim this until I die because these aren't the chains that really matter. These aren't the bondage that really matter, Agrippa. Everybody here is under the bondage of sin. Am I trying to convince you to be a Christian? Absolutely. Paul says, I don't care how long it takes. If I have five seconds or ten years, I'm going to do everything in my power because I know that God can raise the dead. And Agrippa, God can raise you. God can save you. That's my hope. Look at how it ends. Verse 30. The king arose. He had enough. The governor and Bernice, those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, can I tell you the truth? That's not what I expected. After a sermon like this, I was expecting revival. I was expecting Agrippa to fall on his face. I was expecting Pentecost number two, pretty much. But what happens? Festus, Bernice, Agrippa, they get up. They're totally unaffected. They have some small talk, some politics. Paul's still in prison, still innocent. Business as usual. I wonder how you will respond to what we are doing here today how will you respond to the hope of the resurrection that paul laid before us will you be like festus will you scoff at it ignore it just mock it and say how can anybody believe this junk i mean come on it's the 21st century we 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 don't have these things anymore we're talking about blood and sacrifices this jesus is proclaiming old ideas christians are crazy about marriage and gender they're on the wrong side of history this is just foolishness it's ridiculous Will you be like Festus? Or will you be like Agrippa? Who is convicted? Who knows it's true and rational? Do you start to see all the dots getting connected in your heart and in your head? And just at the moment, when you see that you need to submit, when you know that you need to repent, you need to turn to God and give your life to Him, you know it's worth it. You get to that moment and you're just like, ah, almost got me. You distract yourself. You hear the sermon, you hear the word preached, you hear the hope of the gospel, and then as soon as the prayer is over, you're just like, what time's lunch? Glad the sermon ended on time. Wonder how the Dodgers did last night. Should we just like Agrippa and have Satan swoop in and snatch this truth, or will you take five seconds? 
Thank God for hearing this gospel to, to get with God, to repent, to turn to him in faith, to do what Paul did. Do you see the hope of the resurrection? Do you see the hope as the only solution to your rebellion, to your sinful hearts, your deadness before God, that the wrath of God is upon you and the only hope is that God raises the dead and that the only hope, the only way you escape that bondage is through Jesus Christ? Are you tired of kicking against the goads? Are you tired of fighting the God of the universe? Submit to Him. He offers hope and peace and forgiveness. And he will even call you into his service to proclaim that same hope to those around us. And even when it looks like this, you proclaim that hope, you spill your heart out, and nothing happens. You can still have hope in the God who raises the dead. You can still preach the truth and pray and call others to repentance because God can raise anyone, anytime, in any way he wants. That is our hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing hope we have in Jesus. The hope that's not just fleeting, the hope that's not just temporary, the hope that is eternal, and the hope that brings us out of darkness, and the hope that we can share with everybody because everybody is under the same condition, dead in their sins, hopeless apart from you. God, may we be bold to share that hope, the hope that's changed us, the hope that can change the world. May you Put the gospel on our lips, on our hearts. Help us to have confidence that you delight in raising the dead and saving lost souls all around us. And may we be the means by which that you do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.